Hello and welcome to The Planet Optimist, a new podcast series examining business-focused climate action. My name is David Woodford and I'm joined virtually today by our trusty analyst, Daniel Loki. Hello. Our podcast follows on from the Planet Optimist newsletter founded in 2021 by MBA grad Kartik Varma, partly as a way of educating himself on the most pressing issue of our time, but also because what's kind of action in the environmental emergency that we find ourselves in is scary and needs urgent action. In a world in which it's becoming increasingly hard to hold the floor, our 15 minutes of fame has turned into 15 seconds, many are becoming immune to the white noise of disaster and actually by celebrating and discussing our green successes, we believe it will inspire more people to involve themselves in the debate and therefore tackle these pressing concerns. It's also our view that too much of the green debate is dominated by those outside trade and industry. Uh, the private sector has been responsible for much of the innovation that has led to huge reductions in global poverty and high living standards that we've seen over the past half century. And therefore it must be business that drives that change. If you aren't familiar with our newsletter, do check us out at www.theplanetoptimist.com and links to all our socials are in the description. We are a collective and we welcome follower and partner contributions. So if you've got a story to share, if you have a point of view that you want to get across, we want to hear it. My background is primarily, and certainly for the last five years, has been in the automotive sector, which of course has been dominated by electrification. I've been fortunate to have seen in the introduction of three new EV models over the last half a decade, the second gen Renault Zoe, the Master ZE, and most recently the LEVC VIN 5, and I've been able to be extremely hands-on with the latter. And playing a part in the sustainable transition of companies or organisations across the UK and the Crown dependencies, seeing those CO2 figures diminish year on year, those tangible results, is something that really stirs up a lot of pride. Over the last 20 months, I've also been working towards my MBA from Edinburgh Business School, Heriot Watt University up in Scotland, and I'm also very involved in politics, as is my uh, honourable friend joining me on the podcast. And given our imminent change of Prime Minister, Britain's commitment to net zero, which currently stands at 2050, has featured front and centre in this leadership debate. It's my view that this is an easily attainable target. Finland, for example, is committed to 2035 for net zero, and Whilst we are a larger and more diverse country and economy, I don't think that entirely accounts for that 15 year difference. And as for my background, uh, five years ago, I started my degree in politics, philosophy and economics. Um, I love the interrelatedness of the three disciplines, um, as we will discover throughout these podcast episodes. Uh, you really can't discuss one without bringing in the other two and discussing them as well. However, it was the economic side that um, that really spoke to me. And though I do, of course, still follow politics very closely, and I am writing a philosophy book with plans for a few other topics uh, when I'm done. Um, and then I decided to continue my studies at King's College London, uh, where I studied economics and finance for my master's. Uh, the thing that I missed from my PPE degree was the financial side of economics, and I wanted to explore that a bit further. And it was never my intention, but I ended up falling in love with finance. And this is why I decided to pursue as my vocation. Um, as I'm now an equity analyst and on the side I do a bit of coding. Uh, I won't say it's my job because I love every second of analysing the intricacies of companies and the wider economy. During the interim of my studies uh, between my undergraduate and my postgraduate, I worked with Sir Anthony Selden, um, former Vice-Chancellor of my university, uh, to write a few books on the Office of Prime Minister, uh, you know, the history of the title, the workings and the rooms of number 10. Um, and it's a really interesting project that I still find um, myself sort of researching even to this day.
Now, to kick off our first episode, I'm going to bring together two monolithic news topics of our time. Because uh, in 20 years, if you say to me, pick 10 news stories that define the early 2020s, these two are up there. Climate change and cryptocurrency. Uh, now, before we explore the link between the two, Daniel, I have a challenge for you. Uh, and this mm -hmm. will become a recurring segment, Daniel's 90-second challenge. You have got 90 seconds, and I've got a timer here, to, as concisely as you can, Explain to myself and the listeners how cryptocurrency works. Challenge accepted? Challenge accepted. Okay. Three, two, one, go. So I'm going to answer this in a very politician manner. Um, I don't think there is a single one-size-fits-all definition uh, that will explain every facet of every cryptocurrency. Uh, so let's just take Bitcoin as an example, and people can write in and tell me that Ripple isn't a true cryptocurrency or that Solana isn't truly de decentralized or whatever. Uh, cryptocurrency, as its name suggests, is a virtual currency. Uh, it allows people to transfer value to one another without the interference of a central bank or any other financial intermediary. Uh, people describe this aspect as quote unquote decentralized. Every transaction is stored on a digital ledger known as the blockchain. Miners, in the case of Bitcoin, authenticate these transactions, and this is known as proof of work, essentially acting as the auditors, and this prevents double spending of Bitcoin as there is only a fixed supply. This is why there's no single description. You can have cryptocurrencies that act on the basis of proof of stake, and you can also have cryptos where there isn't a fixed supply. Um, additionally, you can have cryptos that act as payments methods such as Bitcoin or decentralized apps such as Ethereum or Lisk, and many others with different use cases, but they all boil down to some form of recording and action on this digital ledger. Very good. 23 seconds to go. I clearly didn't explain in depth enough then. Yeah, no, I think it was, it, was, uh, it was very, very concise. Uh, so you said this is a virtual currency, but I can log on to online banking on my phone and my computer now and see all my money digitally there. What, what's the difference? Two things. The most obvious one is that the money you see in your online banking can be taken out and held physically. Uh, you do have that option. Digital money is a very new, albeit older than cryptocurrency, method of transacting. With cryptocurrency, you don't have that physicality. Uh, to make a very weird analogy, because we did grow up in the 2000s, it's like owning Nintendo dogs on your Nintendo DS. The dogs are virtual. You can't actually hold them. But your actual pet dog, Charles, actually exists. You can look at him, pet him, or you can look at pictures of him on your phone, and he's digital too. Cryptocurrency is to Nintendo dogs as fiat is to real life dogs, and you heard that here first. And from what I understand, there are principally two ways of mining, which is proof of yep. stake and proof of work. Is that right? Yep. Proof of stake uh, uses miners, as we've explained, um, and these miners require large setups and computer power, thus energy, uh, to mine. Uh, in proof of stake, however, the validation is done by a single, largely though not completely, uh, randomly selected individual who has temporarily donated their cryptocurrency or staked um, in order to be given a chance to be chosen as the validator. And when they validate the block, um, they get the rewards and they also get um, their original stake back. Uh, the reason it isn't random is because the probability of being chosen as the next validator um, actually increases as you increase your stake. Um, if I put in 20 coins, um, but you, David, put in 40, then you have double the chance of being chosen as the next validator. 
uh, once chosen, uh, they validate the block and, as I said, they get the reward fees. Uh, this is a very oversimplified explanation, um, and there are a few links in the show docs that go into it in greater detail if you'd like to read more about the subject and how it actually works. But at the heart of it, um, in the context of our discussion today, um, is that, David, it uses far less energy than proof of work. And the principal reason why environmentalists feel an affinity towards proof of stake is because of the vast difference in the time that it takes to move, to mine one proof of stake coin compared to a proof of work coin. Not that we're here to endorse or disparage any particular coin. Please carry out your own research. Your investment may go up as well as down. You la da 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 da. An average Bitcoin uses around 700 kilowatts of energy in its mining, uh, compared to, for example, Ethereum, uh, which stands at around 60 kilowatts. So at a per coin level, that's a massive differential. Yep. So let's put it in perspective. If you've got a, a family electric car, we'll pick on a Polestar 2 here, it's got a 78 kilowatt battery. Uh, mm -hmm. The energy required to mine an Ethereum is actually not too dissimilar to the energy that it takes to charge uh, one of those cars, almost to full, you know, about 250 miles. So mid-size electric family car, that's what, a week's commuting? And what about the energy required for, uh, I don't know, Reddit's favourite Dogecoin, or one of the smaller players? <laughs> uh, well, Dogecoin, uh, that's a proof-of-stake coin and only takes around 0.12 kilowatt hours to mine which is, again, uh, minimal. So you could argue that those wanting to either transact with crypto or if you run a business, accept crypto, you should be encouraging proof-of-stake coin usage in mining over proof-of-work. Well, that's totally dependent on the value of the coins, which are, of course, incredibly volatile. Um, whilst something like Bitcoin might take 750 kilowatt hours of energy to mine in a full-scale facility, it's worth, as of recording, um, £18,889 uh, compared to Dogecoin, which is trading at £0.055. So to use your Polestar analogy, it would take 2.7 Bitcoin and 2,034 kilowatts of energy to go out and buy a new car, whereas it would take 931,727 Dogecoin having used 111,807 kilowatts of electricity. But like anything in a market, if general consumers decide to transact with a particular coin and retailers start accepting them as payment, the invisible hand will step in and the value of these proof of stake coins will increase. Thus the relative CO2 impact of the coin actually goes down. Well, at the moment, the invisible hand seems to be giving Dogecoin the finger <laughs> but uh, I think what this chain of thought does is, is critique one of the symptoms, uh, which is the relative benefits of proof of stake of a proof of work, encouraging their use and, and thus uh, decreasing its uh, relative CO2 impact. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the cause of the problem. And although we must be mindful of how much energy we consume, both commercially and domestically, that real change is going to come with a proper realignment of energy production. Uh, now, I'm sure you've all picked up from our accents that we're from the UK, uh, a, a country where we've made real progress in shifting our electricity generation away from fossil fuels. Uh, in 2020, 59.3% uh, of our electricity production came from renewables, that includes nuclear. That was up 5% from the previous year. Um, but I'd like that to actually like to see the 2021 data as I'm certain that lockdowns 
influence that. Uh, but we're a small country, unfortunately, accounting for just under one and a half percent of world consumption. So if you look at a major developed economy like the USA, they're only at 22.3 for renewable nuclear, and they account for 17% of world consumption. So there's a vast way to go. Norway, though, 99% of energy production comes from renewables. So uh, a big shout out to all the crypto miners in Norway. Uh, lovely some of that green Shiba Inu. Uh, the, the worldwide energy consumption for crypto mining is by coincidence about equal to the energy consumed in Norway. Uh, so it is significant, particularly as it's estimated that a third of Bitcoin is mined in China, uh, which has a very poor track record for green energy production. But consumption from the traditional banking industry is also hugely significant. Uh, it's roughly equal to 1% of global energy usage. And that's not simply from bricks and mortar establishments and Wall Street trading floors. Uh, much of this is from data centers, which in a way aren't too dissimilar um, in that they require a huge amount of electricity to power the cooling systems uh, to these rooms full of you know, very powerful computers uh, mining this crypto. I suppose the difference is that with traditional banking is that these organizations are for the most part uh, accountable either to their customers, their shareholders or other stakeholders, which crypto miners aren't. Mm. Uh, and banks know this, they recognize this. And Actually, they're acting on this. Uh, Deutsche Bank, for example, went carbon neutral, mainly as a result of offsetting in 2012, 10 years. Uh, and by 2025, all electricity supply to all of their offices worldwide will be from sustainable sources. So uh, much like the Norwegian uh, crypto miners, shout out to Deutsche as well. Um, and other banks are getting on board. There's a great framework the UN have introduced called the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which works by aligning the banking sector with the objectives of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. 38% of global banking assets sit within organisations signed up to this charter, and we will publish the latest signatory list uh, on our source list, so do check that out. Uh, and see where your money sits and where it's being managed and see if that organisation is part of this initiative. Uh, and this is far reaching. Unlike other initiatives, this doesn't just focus on the surface level. It goes right into requiring the banks to align both their lending and investment portfolios to hit net zero by 2050. As I've said, I, I think net zero 2050 should be more like 2040 or 2045. But this is still major progress. Uh, and we're here to promote the positive changes going on in these industries. I actually checked today. And there's only one financial institution that I bank with that's actually signed up to this charter. So I will be writing to the others uh, and uh, also looking into their CSR reports to see if actually they are making these kind of commitments, but they are simply just not signing up to this, this programme. If I get a response from any of them, I will let you all know. But on top of, you know, looking at voting with your feet, so to speak, or I suppose in this case, money with who you're transacting with, um, there's an awful lot that you can do. Um, firstly, you can elect to use an electricity supplier who supply energy that has been you know, produced from renewable sources, uh, lobby your locally elected officials to allow the expansion or construction of renewable power facilities, you know, be it hydro, solar or wind. Um, nuclear, although ultra low carbon, is its own minefield and we'll get into that in another episode and like david said uh, look at who you decide to bank with and hold a savings or checking account with uh, look into how your bank is consuming electricity and is decarbonizing if it's not taking action um, then ask why 
Um, if they don't answer, take adequate steps, move and let them know why you're moving. As I said, vote with your money or your feet. I think the, the lobbying for the construction of renewables is really, really important. And we have a lot of controversy in the UK surrounding wind farms. I don't know about mm. you, I don't think they're unattractive. Uh, no. Um, see, my viewpoint is they're not unattractive, but I wouldn't really call them attractive. They're just sort of like, they're, they're there. I think I have I have quite a few memories of sort of, like when I go to my nan and granddad's, we go past a like a field where you saw some of these turbines. Um, so it's sort of a bit of a nostalgia thing for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of You're one of those biased. angry people. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, it's. I think I think you can appreciate them, but they do look very industrial, and I appreciate that that's not everyone's aesthetic. Well, I think that wraps things up nicely. I agree. Um, if you have a comment or question about any of these issues or or any issue. Um, you'd particularly like raised on this podcast um, please DM us at the Planet Optimist on Instagram absolutely uh, as always be mindful of what you eat how you travel how much energy you're consuming as they say mighty oaks grow from tiny acorns so from our resident oak and I it's goodbye <laughs> for now goodbye goodbye